0: Heavenly Father, again, Lord, we come to you just seeking your wisdom, Lord, seeking your presence in our life. Father, I, I praise you and I thank you for your word and the knowledge that you have in it, the knowledge that you've put in it for us. Lord, I ask this morning that you will open your word to us. Help us to learn from your word this morning. Help us, Lord, to, to know you more because of this. Father, give me the words to say this morning uh, as, I, as I deliver this message that you've given to me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we are continuing in our sermon series um, called Jesus' Mission Continues. And this is through the book of Acts. Sorry. We are um, in Acts chapter 8. So if you have your copy of God's Word, you can open to Acts chapter 8. Um, And we are, as I said, we're going through this sermon series with the book of Acts. And we're trying to learn from the early church. Um, to figure out what lessons we can learn to apply to our vision of uh, worshiping God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, this morning, we are in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. And this passage is titled, Simon the Samaritan. Um, you can probably figure out who the main character in the story, or in this passage is, from that title. But this passage shows us three truths about spiritual maturity. And that is, first, that people are saved from a life of sin. Second is that infants lack a depth of knowledge, and that sin requires rebuke. So let's review real quick. Um, in the beginning of the book of Acts, we read uh chapter one, verse eight. Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, as I've said, this verse can be used almost like an outline for the book of Acts. Um the church's mission to or the church's ministry in Jerusalem is explained in chapter 2 through the beginning of 8, and then the church's ministry to Jerusalem and Samaria is in chapter 8, verse 4, through the end of 12, and then the ends of the earth is where we really pick up in uh, Paul's ministry, and that starts in verse 13 and goes all the way to the end of that um, book. Last week um, was the beginning of this unit into um, Samaria, and so we're going to continue that right now. Um, so I'm going to start reading in verse 9 it says a man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great they all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest and they said this man is called the great power of God they were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time so we see that people are saved from a life of sin but see it says Simon talking about Simon the Samaritan here Uh, This is not Simon Peter. These are two different people. This is Simon the Samaritan. Uh, Simon had previously practiced sorcery. Um, This beginning section here where we're introduced to Simon, it presents him as a direct challenger to Jesus and the claims of Jesus and the truths of Jesus' life. See, it says that he was claiming to be somebody great. Simon was claiming to be somebody great. But in Jesus' life, Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that's God. And then Simon also is called the great power of God. But in Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 through 17, it's, um, Jesus says, but you, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. So where Simon the Samaritan is called the great power of God, Jesus really is the great power of God. And where Simon claims to be somebody great, Jesus says the only person who's good alone is God. So not great, but only God is good. None of us are great. So Simon here is proposed as a direct challenger to the claims of Jesus. But this, this passage also brings up a good question. And that question is, is sorcery real? You know, a lot of times... In our modern or postmodern context, people don't want to believe in sorcery and magic. Now I'm not talking about you know card tricks or sleight- of-hand type stuff. I actually um, I really enjoy watching um, videos of a, a magician His name is Apollo Robbins but he does sleight- of-hand stuff. he does um, pickpocket type stuff um, on the street um, for entertainment. He always gives back what he takes. Um, he, he doesn't pickpocket and steal people's stuff, but he does it for entertainment. It's really fun to watch him. I'm not talking about that kind of magic where it's just sleight of hands. I'm talking about, you know, witchcraft and that type of stuff. Um, and so the question is, is sorcery real? Um, so if we take this text seriously, and I hope you do because we take the Bible seriously, then it implies that yes, sorcery is real. But what about other texts? What does the rest of the Bible say about sorcery? So we look in Exodus chapter seven, verse 11. It says, but then Pharaoh, Called the wise men, sorry. Here we go. But then Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same thing as their by their occult practices. And then we see again in Second Chronicles thirty three six it says he passed his sons through the fire in Ben in, sorry in Ben-Hinnom Valley. He practiced witchcraft, divination, and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did a huge amount of evil in the Lord's sight, angering him. Again, in Isaiah 47, 9, says, These two things will happen to you suddenly in one day, loss of children and widowhood. They will happen to you in their entirety in spite of your many sorceries and the potency of your spells. There are also many other examples, even in the book of Acts. We see it in Acts chapter 13 and 19. But many other examples in the Bible where it indicates that sorcery is real. But what does God say about it? We see that in Leviticus uh, chapter 19. Uh, in verse 26, it says, You are not to eat anything with blood in it. You are not to practice divination or witchcraft. And then in 31, it says, Do not turn to mediums or consult, uh, spiritists, or you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Again, in Deuteronomy 8, uh, sorry, 18, 9 through 12, it says, When you enter the land of the Lord, your God is giving you, do not imitate the detestable customs of those nations. No one among you is to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire, practice divination, tell fortunes, interpret omens, Practice sorcery, cast spells, consult a medium or spiritist, or inquire of the dead. Everyone who does these acts is detestable to the Lord. And the Lord your God is driving out the nations before you because of these detestable acts. So we see that God does not approve of sorcery. And the Bible indicates that sorcery is real. Under Old Testament civil law, those who practiced sorcery were supposed to be stoned to death. They are supposed to be put to death. Now, we've talked in the past about different categories of Old Testament law, and the Old Testament civil law applied to the nation of Israel as a governing body. And these were the laws that were supposed to govern the nation um, and how they interacted with each other. Now, we don't follow the Old Testament civil law, but we can still learn about God's character from them. And here we learn that God hates sorcery. Sorcery is real. And yes, it is a sin. But getting back to our text in Acts chapter 8, verse 11, it says they were attentive to him. Now the Greek term used here is prosecco. It also occurs in, um, with reference to Philip in verse six earlier in the same chapter and later to Lydia in chapter 16. In those cases, it describes attentive listening that leads to acceptance of the message of the gospel. So the verb here for paying attention means to listen and to observe, and and that listening and observing leads to believing. So the sorcery that Simon the Samaritan is practicing here is distracting people from the message of the gospel. It's distracting people from God, and that's why sorcery in general is wrong, why it's evil, and why God is against it, because it distracts from God. It takes away, it takes our attention away from Him. It gives us a false hope in something else that might be able to solve our brokenness problem. That this witchcraft or this sorcery might be able to fix it for us. But the Bible says that God is the only way out of our brokenness. That the gospel is the only way to get out of this brokenness. So sorcery is a counterfeit gospel because it offers a false hope and it will only lead to more brokenness because it distracts from God. I'm going to continue reading verse 12. It says, But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed, and after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. So we see Philip goes into this town in Samaria, and he's preaching the good news. So what is the good news? The Greek word there is euangelion. And that's where we get our term evangelism. Um, but the Greek term euangelion means good news. And that's the gospel. And that gospel is that God created us to live in his will. God had a design for us, for all of his creation. And that is to live in per- uh, perfect community with him, and with each other, and with the rest of creation. But because of sin, we have departed from God's will. And that led us to a place of brokenness. I spoke about this brokenness earlier and that people find or seek different ways to get out of this brokenness. It could be sorcery or witchcraft. But a lot of times nowadays, when we look at people trying to earn their way out of brokenness, they're trying to work really hard and earn enough money to fix the brokenness in their lives. Or maybe they're trying to follow a certain set of rules to live a life that's pleasing to God. But we know that no matter what we do, It's only going to lead us back to brokenness. So God sent His Son Jesus to die for our sins. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And He died on the cross to to take the punishment for those sins. He was resurrected on the third day in victory over sin and death. And when we repent from our sins and believe in Him, then we are free to recover and pursue God's will in our lives. That's the good news. This is the good news that Philip came to Samaria preaching. But it says it's the good news about the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is where God's design in our lives is a reality. The kingdom of God is where God's will in our life is a reality. It's not just this thing that we hope for or we dream for or we we try to achieve. The kingdom of God is where God's design in our life is a reality. And so, as believers, we have to recognize that there is this already-but-not-yet aspect to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here for us in our lives, but it's not yet complete. Because although we, uh, although because through the gospel, we can recover parts of God's design in our life, we can never fully achieve that on this side of heaven. So that's the not-yet part, because we can't fully get there. The ultimate kingdom of God is the new heaven and new earth, that John describes in the book of Revelation. So, yes, the kingdom of God is here in the lives of the believers because we can recover parts of God's design in our life. And the more spiritually mature we are, the more surrendered we are to the gospel, the more surrendered we are to the Holy Spirit, the more of God's kingdom we we receive in our lives. But we will never fully get that kingdom of God in our lives on this side of eternity. But then it says that both men and women were baptized. So after they believed, they were baptized. Now this is consistent through Scripture, that baptism is in response to faith. We are baptized after we come to faith. Now this baptism, it does it not cause salvation. It is in response to salvation. I think of it a lot like my wedding band, where my wedding band announces to the world that I'm married. I know I don't have a fancy wedding band on today. This is my silicone wedding band. Um, but in wearing my wedding band, it announces to the world that I am married. It announces to the world that I am claimed, that I belong to somebody. Now, a lot of people don't like to think of it that way, but it, that's what it's announcing to the world. My wedding band does not make me married. I can take it off. I could lose it, which I've lost a couple over the years. I could take it off and I could lose it, but I'm still married. You know, that doesn't make me married. Just like baptism does not make somebody saved. It is an announcement to the world that we are saved. It's an announcement to the world that we are identifying ourselves with Jesus and His community of believers and His church. Then it says, even Simon himself believed. See, last week, we discussed the relationship between um, the Jews and the Samaritans and how there was this, these many, many years of systematized racism. There was so much hate and distrust between the Jews and the Samaritans. But, Philip went and took the gospel to Samaria. We discussed how that applies to our lives. We discussed how the Samaritans in our community are those people who are marginalized or are ignored or we're taught to hate. But see, Simon in this passage not only represents Samaritans through his race, but he also represents Samaritans through his sorcery. See, Philip would have been taught through Judaism, Since he was a child, he would have been taught that sorcerers were evil and thus deserved punishment from God. That sorcerers were evil and deserved the death penalty. But Philip comes and he shares the gospel with him. See, what I want you to see here is that Simon, Simon was not too bad. He was not too evil or too far gone. He was not so far lost that God couldn't save him. Philip, I'm sorry, Simon was a sinner, yes. And he lived a life of sin and he lived a life that was evil and, was a, and he offered a counterfeit gospel. But Jesus' death was still valid for him. I've heard some people say that their sins are too much for God to accept them. But see, the great thing about our lives, the great thing about the gospel is that it doesn't matter how good I think I am or how bad I think I am. What matters is what Jesus did. It doesn't matter what evil I've done in my life. That's not going to, it's not going to cause my life to be too much for the gospel. Because Jesus died to pay the penalty for all of our sins, for all of humanity, for all of history. No matter how bad you think your sins are, Jesus' death is sufficient. It's more than sufficient. The beauty of the gospel is that it has nothing to do with how bad I have been or how good I can try to be. We're all guilty. But when we believe in Jesus, he gives us his righteousness and takes the guilt of our sins, no matter how bad they are or what wrongs we have done. We cannot simply think. So when we look, think about that in our lives, we recognize that truth. And it's easy for us to recognize that truth sometimes. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's really hard but it's even harder sometimes to recognize that truth in somebody else's life. And we look at their life and we say, wow, they're really bad. They've lived a life that's so evil. It's horrible. But we cannot say because their sins are so bad or their sins are so evil that Jesus didn't die for them. That's wrong. Jesus did die for them. Jesus did die and his, his death paid the penalty for their sins. If they would repent and believe in him, It is still our responsibility to take the gospel to them. We cannot ignore them because we think they're too evil for the gospel. It's still our responsibility to take the gospel to them. Moving on, I'm going to read 14 through 17. It says, When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, some people use this passage to argue that salvation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit are two separate events. However, this is the only time in Scripture, this is the only time in Scripture that those two events are separated. Um, this is the only time in Scripture where salvation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit happen at two separate times. It is traditional Baptist teaching that, uh, and I think it's biblical teaching, that when you are saved, at that same time, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside you. But that's not the point of this message, because we could chase that rabbit on for hours and hours and hours, and probably still have a lot of people that disagree with us. And that's okay. The main focus of this passage is in verse 18. It says, When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles hands. He offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. What I want you to see here is that infants lack a depth of knowledge. We've talked about, um, our different levels of spiritual maturity. And so, uh, I meant to put the slide on here, but I didn't get it on there. In our disciple making strategy, we have a page for the, our picture of spiritual maturity. And it starts with lost, people who are lost. The Bible equates lostness with spiritual death. If we are lost, we are dead spiritually. And then once we are saved, we are an infant. Now, a spiritual infant is a new Christian, or it could be somebody who has not allowed the Holy Spirit to transform them so that they have a more mature faith. Or it could be somebody who has never been discipled. They were saved, but then they were never discipled. So they still have the spiritual maturity of an infant. The next level is a spiritual child. So they're starting to grow in their faith and become more spiritually mature. And then we have a young adult. And this is somebody who's starting to show a lot of the, um, the qualities of a disciple in their life. And they're starting to show and 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 bring others along. And then we have a spiritual parent. And this is somebody who has made a disciple or is actively discipling somebody in their own lives. And then a grandparent. Um, Because we want to be a church of disciple-makers who make disciples who make disciples. We want to be disciples who make disciples. So as we are making disciples, we bring that disciple along, and they start pouring into another person and discipling them. Then we've reached that point of spiritual grandparenthood. Now, in our physical lives, typically once you reach the point of grandparent, you're not having children anymore. That's usually how that works. But when, we, when we're when we looking at this spiritual maturity, just because you've reached that level of spiritual grandparent doesn't mean that you're not discipling others anymore. We still disciple them. Um, so Simon, in this passage, Simon the Samaritan, is in the infant stage. He's a new believer. Now, some people would say, some people would argue that Simon is not a believer because of this passage right here. Some people would say that Simon is not a believer, that he had a false sense of salvation, that he thought he was saved. He thought he believed the gospel. But he didn't actually believe in the gospel and he wasn't actually saved. But I think that goes against verse 13. And go back. Can go back some more. In verse 13 where it says, even Simon himself believed. So I think right here it indicates that Simon is a believer. That Simon is a Christian. Even though here, he's not showing that in his life. He's a new Christian. He's still learning. And what this shows us is that he understood the gospel. He understood that he was a sinner and that Jesus died to save him. But he didn't have any further theological training. He thought that he could buy this power that the apostles had. He thought he could buy it with money. He didn't realize that it was a gift from God for the apostles, given through the Holy Spirit. So when we have new converts, we can expect two things. First, we can expect them not to know We can expect them not to have that depth, that spiritual maturity and that depth of knowledge. That's okay. Secondly, we can expect that we have to teach them and train them and bring them along. This is disciple-making. This is discipling somebody. Because when they are saved, they are saved out of that life of sin. And it's not that all of a sudden, boom, we're sanctified. Well, yes, in one sense we are sanctified because God has declared us holy. But in the other sense we have to constantly surrender more and more of our lives to the Holy Spirit and surrender more and more of our lives to the gospel and recognize that, okay, I am saved, but I still have this area of sin in my life and I still need to surrender that. As we grow, the longer we've become, we've been a Christian, hopefully more and more of that is surrendered. But for a new believer, a lot of that is still going to be in their lives and they have to uh, grow through that. And they have to allow the Holy Spirit and allow the gospel to affect their lives so that they can surrender that sin. <clears throat> the best way for us to do this is to be in relationship with them, to be in a disciple-making relationship with them. That's the, the main focus of our disciple-making strategy, is being in relationship with people so we can have gospel conversations. We want to get them into Bible study groups where they can learn the Bible but not just in a classroom setting. We want to get them on mission so they can see how the gospel applies to every, every person's life, how the gospel is not just something that affects our heads and our hearts, but it affects what we do as well. Then we see Peter's response. <laughs> Starting in verse 20, it says, But Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you, because you thought you could attain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter, because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. What we see here is that sin requires rebuke. Sin requires rebuke. Even the sin in a new believer's life, it requires rebuke. What Peter says here is to repent of this wickedness. Peter rebukes Simon and tells him to repent. Now, repent is one of those Christianese words. We use it a lot. It's used in the church a lot. Most Christians could probably give you a a definition for repent, but once you get outside the church and you talk about repentance, a lot of times people have no idea what you're talking about. They may have heard the word before, but they don't know what it means. But in our increasingly Post-Christian society, people who have even heard that word are going to be less and less. We're going to find less and less people who have any experience with this word. So I want to give you a simple definition for repent. To repent simply means to turn away from something towards something else. To repent means to turn away from one thing towards something else. So Peter in this passage is telling Simon, that he needs to repent from his sin. So that is to turn away from his sin and toward God. To repent from your sin means to turn away from your sin and toward God. Now, I I think of this physically, that if my sin is over here and God is over there, they're in opposite directions. So if I'm heading towards my sin, to repent from that would be to physically turn around and go toward God. A lot of times that's not a physical action that we do. It might be. It might be that you are literally walking towards sin and to repent would be to physically turn around but a lot of times it's not a physical turn that we have to do it's a life turn or a mental turn or maybe a habitual turn that we have to take so to repent means to turn away from something towards something else now Christians a lot of times, or not a lot of times but Christians we have different levels of repentance we have our first repentance is away from a life of sin toward God, and that is salvation. We repent from our sin in salvation. But then there is a continual repentance because we, we cannot just get rid of the, all the sin in our life in one fell repent. We can't just get away from all that in one turn. It's a constant turning toward God. Because we're not perfect. And Like I said earlier, we're not going to be perfect on this side of eternity. But we are constantly trying to become more and more like Jesus. That's our process of sanctification. It's becoming more like Jesus. Now, what is surprising in this passage is how stern Peter's rebuke is. Peter comes in, and it sounds really harsh. I'm not going to lie. When I read that, I'm like, Man, Peter, you really came down hard on this guy. You really let him have it here. Is it too harsh? I I don't know. It kind of seems awfully harsh. But when you think of Peter's experience... Just a few chapters ago we saw where the church was where the people in the church was selling their property and bringing the proceeds to the church and we hear the story of Ananias and Sapphira where Ananias and Sapphira they were a husband and wife and they sold their property and brought some of the proceeds to the church and Peter says "was this the price that you sold your house for?" and Ananias says hm, "yes it is" and poof he falls dead God brings judgment on Ananias immediately. Drops him dead right there. And so a couple of guys get up and they take Ananias out and bury him. And Sapphira, his wife, comes in and Peter says, is this the price that you sold the house for? And she says, why, yes it is. And bam, she falls dead immediately. God punishes her immediately. And the people who were burying her husband walk in the door and carry her out. So is Peter's rebuke stern? Yes, it is. But I think that Peter is looking at Simon, the Samaritan, and he's afraid that he might find this immediate judgment from God right then and there. Is his warning, is his rebuke stern? Yes, it is. But I think when you look at Peter's life, there's a good reason for this sternness. He has seen how quickly the judgment of God can fall on somebody, and he doesn't want this to happen to Simon. So he brings this stern rebuke to him because... Sin is serious. Sin is serious business. It separates us from God. Before salvation, it completely separates us from God. And then after salvation, our sin still hinders our relationship with God. And as believers, it's easy for us to take some sins seriously. You know, things like murder and adultery or child abuse, it's easy to take those sins seriously. No matter what belief system you have, Around the world, it's wrong to murder somebody. No matter what belief system you have, all around the world, it's wrong to abuse children. So it's easy for us to look at these sins as believers and say, oh yeah, that's wrong. That's a sin. That's wrong. But there are other sins that are just as serious, but we don't take them as seriously. Some sins are easy to overlook, and we allow them to creep into our lives. Maybe lying. You know, it could be lying to your spouse or lying on your taxes. It's lying. You know, it could be a a lack of forgiveness if we're unwilling to forgive other people. See, God has told us to forgive. And when we are unwilling to forgive others, that's a sin. Envy. I think envy is something that we all struggle with. It's a sin that we all struggle with. And it's easy for us to not take that seriously. But we have to take it seriously because sin is serious. It separates us from God or it hinders our relationship with Him. Now, one that I struggle with, honestly, is not being in constant prayer. You know, the Bible tells us to be in a state of constant prayer. And I struggle with that. And I need to take that sin seriously. And I need to take that sin before Jesus and tell Him and say, please help me with this. Take this into the Holy Spirit and say, give me the power and the wisdom and the knowledge and the obedience to be in constant prayer. We must allow the Holy Spirit to speak into our lives and to point out our sins. Now, it's easy to think about the Holy Spirit telling us what our sins are. But sometimes the Holy Spirit speaks through other believers. And when we think of another person pointing out the sins in our life, just like here, Peter was pointing out Simon's sin. It would be easy for us to take offense to that. It would be easy for us to say, well, how dare you point out the sin in my life? What about this this, and this and this in, in your life? Take offense to it and become defensive. But look at what Simon says. Simon the Samaritan, he says, Pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So after they testified and spoken sorry after they had testified and spoken the word of the lord they traveled back to jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the samaritans simon's response pray to the lord for me he didn't become defensive he didn't start throwing out all these different excuses he said pray for me help me please yes this is wrong help me pray for me simon was not offended And Simon asks for help. This is important. He could have offered excuses, but he didn't. We need to ask other believers to hold us accountable, to point out the sins in our life. And when they do, our response should be similar to Simon's. Pray for me and help me. Because I'm still struggling with this and I need help. Now, some would teach that it's wrong for us to think that we don't have the power in me and the Holy Spirit to overcome this sin, that through me and the gospel and the Holy Spirit, I should be able to overcome all sins in my life. But when we think about the three circles image where the gospel is about reconciling relationships, our relationship with the Father and our relationship with others, those relationships with others is a big part of our sanctification. The relationships with others is a big part of uh, recovering God's design in our life. And so... I want to see God's design in your life. And because of that, I'm going to point out the sins in your life. I'm going to lovingly rebuke those sins. In the same way, I expect you to hold me accountable. Because you want to see God's kingdom in my life. You want to see God's design in my life. So because of that, when you see that sin, you lovingly rebuke it. Hopefully not quite as harsh as Peter did. But you, we can't ignore it. We have to treat sin like it's serious, simply because it is serious. And then, verse 25, it says, So after they had testified and spoken the word about the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. What I like about this is that you know, Peter rebuked Simon. Simon asked for help. And I'm sure that they sat there and they helped him a little while, but they didn't dwell on it. They didn't sit there and and harp on it over and over and over again and dwell on it time and time again and let it sit there and continue to hinder their relationship. Once the incident was handled, they went back to their mission of spreading the gospel. They continued on their mission from Jesus. They continued on their mission to be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So our application from this message. First application point is to believe. Believe in Jesus and repent from your sins. Accept his gift of salvation. And in response to this faith, be baptized. And join a community of believers where we can hold each other accountable. And then I have points for knowing, being, and doing. Again, these are our three traits of a disciple. Knowing, being, and doing. So we have to know that Jesus died for all. Even Simon the Samaritan, who detracted or who distracted the Samaritans from God, who offered a false gospel, Jesus died for him. We have to know that no matter how bad we think we are, or how bad we think somebody else is, or how bad their previous sins are, Jesus lovingly took the punishment for those sins. And the same goes for your Samaritans. The being part is to be a disciple maker. Allow your life and your relationships to bring others closer to God. Like Philip, who took the gospel to Samaria and he built relationships there. He allowed those relationships to point to the gospel. Philip's relationship with the apostles back in Jerusalem, when he was able to to say, hey, we've got some new believers here, come on down. So Peter was able to use his relationship with Philip to come and to build those gospel relationships. Um, Along with the being part, we have to be patient with new believers because we know that they're being saved from a life of sin and that that sin doesn't go away immediately. We have to be patient with them and teach them and train them. Be in those disciple-making relationships. And the final application point is doing. So that doing, what are you going to do in response to this? It's to rebuke sin when you see it in other believers. And then when others rebuke the sin in your life, accept it and grow from it. Like Simon, ask for prayer, ask for help, and grow from it. Don't get defensive and start offering excuses. Don't let your pride get in the way of your surrender. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, I thank you for the wisdom that's in your word. Lord, I pray that you will help all of us to, to take this message and apply it to our lives, to surrender to your truth, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So there's a few different ways that you can respond to this message. You can respond in your seat and pray that the Lord will help you to align your life with His Word. You can come to the front and pray at the cross. You can come pray with me. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning.